Well, as we begin our time tonight, I'll ask you to take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of John. We are in chapter 13. Let's bow for a word of prayer as we begin our time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for yet another chance to open your word together. Lord, we need your hand upon us. We need your spirit to move upon us. We know your word is absolutely true in every way, so help us to understand it as you give it to us. May we receive it with grace. Thank you for attending to us in this way, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. When I was a young boy, I would often spend time with my mom or my dad talking about the first in life. I remember my father being so concerned about trying to help me grow and teach me about the things of God that he would actually, uh, when I was younger, uh, we didn't get allowance, but he would actually, uh, if I needed money, he would say, okay, I'll pay you this much an hour and I get to do whatever I want with your time. And then we would typically sit down with the Bible and he would teach me the Bible because he said, uh, you don't get to dictate what you get to do with your time if I own your time. And so if I wanted the $2 that he was going to pay me an hour or whatever it was, that's what we did. And so it was helpful. And oftentimes during those times, we would talk about firsts in life. All of us have had firsts. All of us throughout our life have had firsts. They seem to come rapidly in our childhood days. We we first talk. We have our first word that we say when we are a young child, and our parents are so excited to hear what that first word will be. Um, even some of us will say, no, they said mom first and not dad dad first. And, and we will say that the first time you take a step, it's very exciting. You begin to walk. Your parents look at you and they go, oh, isn't this wonderful? You start to walk. It's a joyful occasion. And as you grow, you begin to go to school. You go to your first school class and you experience all of that that's taking place. You quickly discover that life is no longer just fun and games as a child. There actually is work involved with life. And then you probably have other firsts that come along when you grow up, like your first time you rode a bike or the first time you played the sports team or the first time you uh, were learning to do something else. Maybe you learned to swim, something like that was a first. There were first times you were allowed to drive the car. And that all progressed until the first time that you were allowed to drive alone. I remember even in my older years, there was when I was an air traffic controller, there's a very tight watch on you when you're beginning to learn how to control live airplanes in the sky so that they all don't meet at the same place at the same time. And it was a very weird feeling to me when the supervisor who was watching me and training me and then finally unplugged behind me and I was by myself. It was a weird feeling. That's kind of how you feel when you drive for the first time. Well, I'm in the car alone. Here I am all by myself. I'm responsible for all of this. And, of course, there's the first childlike affinity for that girl or boy in life that you think you're going to spend the rest of your life with. And sometimes, maybe for some of us, that was the case. My point in just saying that is that life is full of firsts. And yet, on the other hand, it is also full of lasts. It's just the same way we have firsts in life, so too we have lasts in life, some of which we hope would be last, 
and others we hope would be not our last. There are times of joy in life that we hope will last for a long time. But oftentimes there are and times of struggle, difficulty, that we are thankful that they have passed and we pray that they will not ever come back again. Oftentimes I've wondered what I would do if I knew that today was going to be my last day. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. What would you do if you knew that this was going to be the final hours of your life? We see some of this reality in our day. Every time someone is sentenced to death for a crime they've committed that has given upon them a death penalty, they face that day inevitably. And although they are confined to some small area, some small space, they are given at the very least a final request for what they would like as their final meal. What would you do if you knew that you were going to depart this earth in just a few hours? What if God gave you the knowledge concerning your last day? What would be the first or the last things, really, that you would be doing? The things that usually flood our minds when we think about that subject, and I'm sure many of us have thought about that subject, it's oftentimes those things that we've put off. Things that we put off in life that we wished we'd have done, but really we wish that through our life we would have taken time to do them. Maybe a trip, maybe some experience you desired to have but you didn't have. Now I want to take it a step further and say that you aren't going to die. But this is going to be the final words that you will ever say to someone or some group of people. You're not going to die, but but this is the last time you're ever going to speak with this person or you're ever going to speak with this group of people. What would you say? What would you want to be the final words that you leave as a lasting legacy attached to? To who you are. What would be your last actions, your last words? Since it's somewhat of a hypothetical question, because none of us really know, it could be very difficult for us to answer that. But in reality, it may not be as hypothetical as we think, because none of us really know when our last day is, right? We just don't have a guarantee of that. In fact, we ought to be living every day in our Christian lives as if today is, in fact, our last day. We ought to be thinking like that all the time. And so when we think of it that way, does that change how you might answer the question? And just to put it all in the right perspective, what do you think God desires your final words or actions to be? Well, it's with that idea in our mind that I want us to approach John 13 tonight because it's, it is with the conclusion of John chapter 12, as we saw last time, 
that we get a glimpse into the answer to that very idea, that very question, as we look into the final hours of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just by way of reminder, John tells us in John chapter 12, verse 49 and 50, For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say, what to speak. And you know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Now, those two verses summarize for us, really, the entire ministry of Jesus Christ. And all that will be said and all that will be done from John chapter 13 to the end is fits within that ministry as well. So all that has happened before and all that comes after all fits within that reality of idea that I didn't do anything on my own initiative. I only did what the Father wanted me to do. So whatever He had taught, whatever He had commanded for His disciples and those who would follow Him uh, for them, it did not come from some kind of humanistic fount of knowledge. It did not come from some kind of uh, bedrock of education in the wisdom of men. It came from the only place from which truth comes. It came from God the Father. These are words of eternal life. I was intrigued as I was listening to us share our what we are reading, and many of you reading through the Bible chronologically, and I, it, just, it, it just brings joy to my heart to hear all that we are reading and all of those kinds of things. And I was thinking about Chronicles, because someone had mentioned Aaron Chronicles, and I'm reading through the Bible chronologically, and I just read this passage about Saul uh, and, and why Saul died. And the reality in, in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10, why Saul died was this reality. First of all, he did not do what the Lord had commanded him, it says, which was, 1 Samuel 15, he did not kill the Amalekites as he was. He did not wipe them out as God had told him, and Samuel had to come and hack Agag to pieces. So that was the first thing. He did not do what God said, so he did not follow what God had commanded him to do. And then it says, and he did not inquire of God. He he inquired of a medium instead. In other words, he sought wisdom from somebody other than God. And it says, the, the Lord killed him for those things. Wow. Wow. Jesus was not like that. Jesus did only what the Father spoke. Now, why does he say that? Because to follow what God commands, Jesus says, I have given, you've given me commandment to say and what to speak, and, and I know that his commandments are eternal life. To follow what God commands, and the most important command is to believe upon his Son for the forgiveness of our sins, to follow that command inextricably links us to Christ in whom there is life why John wrote this gospel, that we might believe that Jesus is the the Christ, and by believing we'd have life in his name. So that means that we do not have to search, we do not have to overly think about what it is that we should or should not be doing throughout all of life. Saul did not go to God for his wisdom, he went to a medium instead, a spiritist, which was forbidden by the Old Testament. 
We have all we need, whether it be our first day or our last, because what we need to think about and do is exactly what Christ did throughout his life, throughout his ministry. And he conti- what he continues to do, even in the final hours before his death here in John chapter 13, and in John chapter 13 through John chapter 17, as I have been saying, the answer and the example is clearly laid out for us to see. These are the final words for a saved people. These are Jesus Christ's instructions for us as believers of how to live. And in chapter 13, there is this great example given to us and the command that we ought to be doing. And in order to not insult our intelligence, the great example and command is just simply the sacrificial love for one another. We'll talk about that a little more in just a moment, but that's, that's what we see in chapter 13. Then in chapter 14, you, there, you hear and, and see the teaching that of, of how we are empowered to follow that command, to follow what we are commanded to do in verses 34 and 35 of chapter 13. How we are empowered, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is going to give us the Spirit. Then in chapter 15, Jesus teaches that our empowerment is appropriated through a continual nourishment from the one in whom love is personified. It is a abiding in the vine. Christ is the vine, we are the branches. And then as you go through chapter 16, you can see that even though we may live by Christ's example, even though we are empowered to live by Christ's example, even though we are inviting in the vine to receive the nourishment in order to continue to carry out the example and the command that God has given us, the world will still repel, the world will still hate us. But we are taught not to worry. Why? Because Christ has overcome the world. He was in us is greater than he was in the world. Christ has overcome the world. And as Paul says in Romans, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And then finally you get to chapter 17 and Christ there is interceding on our behalf before the Father. And he is asking the Father to protect us in the midst of the world in which we are for a time. And so this is the comprehensive reality for our lives. This is how we are to live. All of these truths ought to stir up in us a reverential excitement concerning what God will accomplish in our lives if we just do what he says. So the whole upper room discourse here that we have in John chapter 13 begins with Christ's monumental example. And this is an example of One aspect of love. And we've read it before, but I think it's important for us to read it again, just verses 1 to 20. And we'll cover uh, quite a bit of this tonight uh, as we think through this. Before the feast of the Passover, verse 1, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about. 
And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread and has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I'm telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am truly Truly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Now for our time today in this text, I don't want to go through every obvious detail of this passage. It's obvious for the, you and I as Christian readers of the Scripture that this is a demonstration of one aspect of the real Godlike love. It is clear from the words of Christ in verse 34 and 35 that this is what he is demonstrating to us as followers of him. A new commandment I give you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. There's the example aspect. By this, and here's the result of that when the world sees it, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So this is the demonstration that Jesus Christ has for those who are following him. And with that said, it's both a demonstration of one aspect of love or, or one, one branch, if you will, of love in action. This is Christ physically washing the feet of his followers. But it also carries a spiritual reality And a spiritual drive, if you will, that overshadows the whole thing. And so as we go along, I pray that we will see this clearly. The disciples are now alone with Christ. The crowds are gone. It is Passover night. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples alone. If you were to travel over to Israel even today and you visit the old city of Jerusalem, you can go to the place where they say it is the upper room. In fact, there's a little plaque on the wall that says the upper room. And it's not the upper room. In that sense, some would try to sell you that story, but it's not. But it's a room like that. It's just a large room where several people could fit into this space. Uh, And in the middle was a table And it was pretty low to the ground so that those who came could recline around the table and eat. 
That's basically what it is. It's a, it's an, a big empty space. And this is where Jesus and his disciples are. No one else is there. And because it's the Passover meal, they were all reclining near the table and they would normally do that for a meal. You have one man's head near another man's feet. And it would have been that kind of thing. Normally, there would have been in any kind of house, if you had been invited to someone's home, you would have been come into the house, there would have been a servant there who would have taken care of washing your feet as a guest because as you were walking around, you don't want someone's dirty feet next to someone's head if they're eating. And so because you would walk around in the normal attire for your feet were sandals and something that was open, you would become dirty on the dirt roads. And as people were going from place to place, it was necessary for them to have their feet washed frequently. And this was done by the servants. But because this was a borrowed room, there wouldn't have been a servant there to do that kind of work. And also, just very interesting, Luke tells us in Luke's gospel in chapter 22 that even during the Passover meal, the disciples are arguing with each other as to who is the greatest among them. And many commentators that you read believe that they're arguing because about who's the greatest, because the custom was that if you're the first one to get there and there's no servant, you are the one to take up the task to wash the feet. And so they're arguing, and some commentators say they're arguing about that. Wait a minute, I'm, I'm better than you are. I'm greater than you are. It didn't really matter who got there first in their mind. They're just arguing about that. And since there was no, this was a low, menial task, no one was desiring to lower themselves to do that kind of thing. In fact, just a side note of interest also, even the Jewish rules for customs specified that foot washing could not even be required of a Hebrew slave. So if you were a Jew, you wouldn't even have done that even if you were a slave. So possibly that was the understanding amongst the disciples of the lowliness and the disgrace that took place in that duty. And they were then arguing with each other. Now you remember, this is Christ's final night. Of course, they don't fully understand that, but Christ knows that. This is his final night, and they are having issue with each other about who's going to serve each other. And so John tells us that Jesus Christ demonstrates this act, this, this act of sacrificial love, even though he is the greater of all of them. In spite of that fact, this is his last hour of his life. Like verse 5 says, he pours water into a basin. He begins to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel in which he was girded. Now the term wash is an interesting term because it's used for both the cleansing with water, like we see here, which Christ is doing. That's the obvious part. But it also carries the meaning and the idea in a symbolic way, the symbolic act of making someone morally clean. And we see kind of him hinting to that reality down in John 10. And really, in verse 7, what I do you don't realize now. In other words, Jesus is taking the physical reality and he's laying in in there this whole overarching reality, the moral reality to it all. Christ is pointing to that, that they might see 
God in him. Look at what the text says. He gets up from summer, lays his garments aside, girds himself, pours water in a bucket, washes their feet and wipes it with a towel. Christ gets up, leaves the place of honor. Sounds familiar? Jesus Christ left the place of honor and the glories of heaven to come and be the servant here on this earth. He lays aside his outer garments the same way in which he willingly laid aside and did not hold and grasp the equality with the Father. And he takes a position of a servant just as he did in the Incarnation. So he begins to serve others. And he serves with the purpose that they might know that he is the Lord of all. Matthew 28, or 20, verse 28, says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This was Jesus' purpose. So his service is seen through his sacrificial giving of his life so that others might not have their sin accounted to them. That's why Jesus came. Jesus got up from the table in order to demonstrate what was to come. And this is the whole purpose of love. No matter what aspect of love it is, no matter if it's love in that gracious service kind of way in which someone is is receiving from others something that is very enjoyable, or whether it is the love of God by which discipline comes into someone's life. Hebrews chapter 12 clearly says a father loves those whom he disciplines those whom he loves. So another aspect of that is discipline. So you have the, this, this idea, we get this idea in, in, in Western America or, or the Western world where love is this softness all the time. That's not the case. That's one aspect of love, and you see that here, and you see the full giving of yourself on behalf of others, and yet oftentimes God is giving of himself as he bears the burden and disciplines within that. And this is the whole purpose of Christ's love, because... Through his love, the Father is glorified. The Father was glorified. The Father will be glorified through being both the just and the justifier of the ungodly. This principle is an example for us, Jesus said. Let's look at the example together in verses 6 through 8. He came to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord... Do you wash my feet? Jesus said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter says, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus said to him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Peter's still thinking on human terms. Peter's still thinking in the temporal realm. Peter's still thinking on an earthly level. He's thinking that this is just an act of convenience. This is just something that is a convenient reality. And since there was no servant here, why worry about that? Something that must be done doesn't really need to be done. But there's no way that he's giving in to have the Lord do it, especially not to him. You want to wash people's feet, that's fine, but you're not going to wash mine. There's no way I'm going to have you stoop that low. It's a demeaning task. 
Jesus knows that he doesn't get it. The interesting thing about this, we read that and we think, man, Peter, you didn't get it. Listen, we don't get it either. We don't get it either. Because we don't love with the same kind of mindset as Jesus is loving. We love most of the time because it's convenient. Because it's convenient for us in whatever situation it is or because we think that we're going to get something out of it. But that really is not the love of Christ. That's not the love He's showing here because His love takes its eyes completely off Himself. His love rests His own eyes totally on God the Father. Totally on, really, verse 49 and 50 of chapter 12. I came to do what the Father has commanded me to do. Jesus isn't doing this of His own initiative. This is what the Father is showing Him. This is the love of the Father flowing through Him. This is Jesus Christ acting on behalf of the Godhead because He is God. He's doing this so that others will see and know God. That's the whole goal of biblical Christ-like love. So that others will see and know God. Jesus says, look, Peter, unless you are cleansed by me, you have no part with me. In other words, what I am doing in the physical realm is simply to help you see your need in the spiritual realm. Simply to help you understand what's going, what's coming about in just a few short hours. And you know what? Peter is so like us. Peter's so like us. I like Peter because I'm a lot like Peter. I, I just seem to say it and don't think much about it oftentimes. Just ask Debbie. She'll tell you. I'm dull. Dull of mind. Far too often thinking on the temporal physical level. Far too often thinking of the here and now. Peter is still focusing on the act. Peter is still focusing on what Jesus is actually doing rather than on what it points to. Verse 9, Simon Peter says to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter's so stuck on the physical act. Okay, sure, if you want to push the point, don't just wash my feet. If it's really that important to you, then go all the way. So Jesus explains himself further. He says to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet. He's completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For I know he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. But once again, Jesus takes Peter and the rest of the men back to the physical so that he might teach them and us, a lesson concerning the spiritual. Listen, Peter, Peter, Jesus says, it makes no sense to take another bath once you're clean. Right? He who's bathed needs only to wash his feet. It makes no sense for you to, to get a full bath when you're already clean. All you need is to have the dirt that, that you have accumulated on you from walking around in a world 
All you need to do is have that removed, have that cleansed from you. You you don't need to take another bath. Listen, Peter, you don't need... Here's what he's saying. You're saved, Peter. You believe in me. You don't need to get saved again. You just need to have the sin that's accumulated, confessed, and washed off. Continual part of you, Peter, that interacts with the world needs daily cleansing through confession and forgiveness. That's what 1 John 1 9 says. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins. That's not an evangelistic uh, verse. That's a verse for the Christian. That's what Christians do. That's the outworking in Christian life. If we have fellowship with the Father, as John says in 1 John chapter 1, then then we have a fellowship with Jesus Christ. And one of the outworkings of that fellowship is we admit our sin because if we say we don't have sin, we call God a liar. And if we say we're walking in the light, but we walk in darkness, we lie and the truth isn't in us. So when you understand your sin, you confess your sin before God and you understand you have a faithful advocate with the Father who forgives you. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to his men. This is what takes place when love in every aspect, is exercised so that others see Christ. All the facets in which love is exercised. So when the Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sins in 1 Peter chapter 4, when it says that, he, he's not saying that love excuses sin. He's not even intimating that. What Peter is saying is that love Love that reaches out even when one is sinning causes and helps that one to see Christ who is the only true cleanser for sin. That's what love does. That expression of love willingly takes on the burden of another. Begins to address the need so that they might see Christ. Jesus says, listen, you don't need to bathe again. You just need your feet washed. That's why Christ begins to explain this demonstration to them in verse 12. We get the little, the little vignette commentary note there, if you will, that not all of you are clean. Jesus knew that one was betraying him. We know who that is because of the first four verses that Satan had already entered into Judas. Jesus knew that. And so in verse 12, he begins to give this explanation. And he says, and so when he had washed their feet, he lays his garments down, he reclines at the table, and he says, do you know what I've done to you? Do you understand? Do you understand what just happened? You see, they had been arguing about who's the greatest. They're arguing about, hey, wait a minute, I'm higher than you. Here's our hierarchy of of group here. Listen, he called me first. I can imagine that. Wait a minute, Bartholomew, go sit down. He called me first. I'm sure Peter was one of the loudest. Maybe that's why Jesus went to him and he had it to hear. All of the disciples were willing to exercise their desire for their throne and for themselves to be exalted. But no one wanted to see God glorified in their Christian brothers by serving them, picking up the towel so that they might see God in them. Nobody wanted to do that. And Jesus says, do you know what I've done to you? Jesus' act was a powerful lesson concerning the whole meaning and act of love. And they're missing it. They're missing the point. 
And so Jesus says in verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, I am. If I am the Lord and the teacher and I washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. In other words, if I'm the highest, you're arguing about who's the greatest. If I'm the Lord, if I'm the master and the teacher and you're the students, then shouldn't, if I did that, shouldn't you do that also? I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. In other words, the way I humbled myself, the way I sacrificed myself, the way I gave of myself, the way I took on your burden on myself, you ought to do that for others. Truly, truly, verse 16, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. Neither is one who is sent greater than one who sent him. For if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. So this is a compelling argument of Christ, isn't it? It's a classic argument of the greater to the lesser. In other words, if the greater lives in this way, it makes perfect sense that those who are the lesser are to be living in that same way as well. If this was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. Really the vernacular of our day. So when Jesus says in verse 15, do as I did to you, and in verse 17, you are blessed if you do them, he's not saying literally or necessarily He's not saying, hey, go wash each other's feet. Not saying that. He's saying, listen, love one another in that sacrificial kind of way. He's speaking about loving one another in such a way that others see Christ's transforming power in you. So that they see that in your life and they are drawn to him and they're saying, hey, why are you so different? Because those who are watching your life now are going to see something that's different. They're going to see that something took place in your life and you're not the same person that you were before that would say, I'm not going to do that. There's no way I'm going to go and get the basin and the towel and do that menial realities. And they're going to see a difference in you. Why? Because the world doesn't love like that. The world doesn't do what God requires, what God has shown by way of example that we should do. The world doesn't love in any aspect of love like God loves. Because God only loves with sacrificial glorifying love. The world loves with a self-exalting love. Jesus is saying, love in this way. That's a foreign concept to the world. Why? Because the world is utterly out for self. And the love of Christ is utterly out for the glory of God. The world lives for one purpose. So that it might have what it wants, the way it wants, when it wants for itself. And yet, the love of God lives for one purpose, so that others might know the Lord our God. Now, I want to show you this idea back in the Old Testament really quickly. Ezekiel chapter 24. This example to the world idea. 
Israel was to be that. Israel was to be the example. Israel was to be this conduit of God so that the world might hear of God, know God, because they were different. They were separate from the world. They were living in the, in the way that God had commanded them to live so that God would be glorified and seen in them, and yet they refused to do that. And so God sends them several prophets. One of the prophets is Ezekiel. In verse 15, it says, And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Ezekiel chapter 24, verse 15, Son of man, behold. I love that word, behold. Especially when God says it means pay attention. Pay attention here. I'm about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. Ezekiel, pay attention, because I'm about to do something to your life that's going to be drastic. But you're not going to mourn about it, Ezekiel, and you're not going to weep about it, and your tears are not going to come. So we know if we just had that verse, something happened to Ezekiel that's very serious that would have, should have brought tears and mourning into his life, and yet God says to him, that's not going to happen in your life. You're not going to do that. That's not going to be your response. This is a serious thing. I'm going to do something very serious in your life, but your response is not going to be that. Groan silently, verse 17 says, make no mourning for the dead. Uh-oh, something's going to die. Bind on your turban, put your shoes on your feet, and do not cover your mustache, and do not eat the bread of men. That's how you're supposed to respond to this, Ezekiel. Okay, so what is it? So I spoke to the people in the morning. Ezekiel gets up, speaks to the people in the morning, Israel. And in the evening, my wife died. And in the morning, I did as I was commanded. The people said to me, Will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? In other words, Ezekiel, your wife just died. You're not mourning at all. Will you not tell us what is happening? This response you have? Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am about to profane I am about to profane my sanctuary and the pride of your power, which is the pride of your power. See, they were worshiping the sanctuary. I'm about to profane that. I'm about to profane the desire of your eyes and the delight of your soul. You're not worshiping me. You're worshiping all of this stuff. And I'm about to profane that. And your sons and your daughters whom you have left behind will fall by the sword. You've disobeyed me, and this is the result of it. And you will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache. You will not eat the bread of men. And your turbans will be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You will not mourn and you will not weep. But you will rot away in your iniquities and you will groan to one another. Ezekiel, here's what I'm going to do to you. Your life is going to be assigned to Israel. You get up in the morning, you tell them exactly that because the way you're doing it is exactly what I'm going to do with them. Thus, verse 24, Ezekiel will be assigned to you. According to all that he has done, you will do when it comes. Then you will know that I am the Lord God. Ezekiel is your example. What you see happening there is teaching you something about me, and you're going to know that I am the Lord God. That's the same thing Jesus is doing, yet from a whole lot less drastic reality. 
When we love one another, others see that and it's a radical reality of what God has done in our life and they see that He is the Lord God. That's the whole point. Ezekiel's life was to be a pointer for others to God. His lack of external mourning was to be that others would see that they might be directed to God. That's the same thing Christ is demonstrating right here. How we love one another ought to do what God's love has done. It it ought to do for others what God's love ought to do. It ought to point them to Christ. God's love took us to Christ. God's love sent Christ. God's love in us ought to point others to Christ because that's what true peace is. Jesus says in verse 17 of John chapter 13, you are blessed if you do them. It's one thing to know the things, but real happiness lies in doing them. You see, Satan says, listen, if you don't do what God says, you'll really be happy. If you don't do what God commands, that's where happiness is. And Jesus Christ is saying, no, no, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. If you do them. Notice he didn't say you're blessed if you think often about them. You're blessed if you write it on a card, put it on your refrigerator, and every now and then look at it. No, didn't say that. You're blessed if you just learn about them. No. You're blessed if you do them. If you do them. James says, let's not just be hearers of the word, let's be doers of the word. When we sacrifice ourselves so that others might see Christ, Jesus is saying, that's when blessing comes. We think that the guys are are arguing about who's the greatest. I'm going to get my blessing. I'm better than you are. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You guys got it all backwards. You got it all backwards. Happiness is found when you just serve other people. And the world and our families are going to look at us and they're going to wonder what has happened to us. They're going to walk in a place like this and they're going to say, these people aren't just a bunch of nice people. These people are a bunch of people that love each other. And the door is open when they see that to tell them about our Lord Jesus Christ. So just like the physical foot washing, to love like this is going to be a lot of dirty work. But if we'll humble ourselves so that they might see Christ in us, then Jesus can cleanse them fully. I was reading one of the commentators and he asked it this way. Quote, are we people of the towel? Are we people of the towel. Maybe that would be a good title. Are we people of the towel. It ought to be the thing that we're always doing. That ought to be what our hearts desire and the blood that pumps through our Christian heart ought to be. And whatever we're doing, 
It ought to be that sacrificial love. Sometimes that means we have to go to one another and say, hey, brother, you got you got a blind spot you need to you need to have fixed. You're sinning in this way, and I need to help you with that. Sometimes it's that. We we sometimes don't define it that way. We don't think that's love because that that that, that doesn't feel so good. But that is love. God uses us as an instrument of that very often, and yet at other times it's not that. It's just simply choosing to love somebody who's not lovely. Jesus said, if you know these things, you're blessed if you do them. Families will be affected. Husband and wife relationships will be affected. Friendships are going to be affected. But Christ will be exalted. You and I will love as Christ did in action. The same way that the Father loved Christ and Christ loved us. So, let me go back to the question I asked at the beginning. If you knew this was your last day, what would be the focus of your thoughts? Would you desire to sacrifice self? Even if you rightly deserve better? So that others would know the love of God? Would you do that? That's what Christ's lesson is for us. So what is your love like? What is your love like? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this penetrating lesson tonight. Each one of us has to look at our own heart before you, how you have loved us and how we ought to love one another. Thank you for this one aspect of love that you are the example of right here in this moment, in this time, as we see it on the page. We know how you served. Serving takes so many different avenues. Sometimes we're serving one another by doing something behind the scenes that will just help others in whatever it is, the ministry that we're involved in, and sometimes we're making a meal for somebody and taking it to them. Sometimes we're going on our knees before you and just praying for others, and sometimes we're interacting with you on behalf of believers who are in sinful situations, and sometimes it's us as an instrument in your hand to go and confront others with the truth so that they might repent. Whatever aspect it is, Lord, we just want to serve. We want to be loving to one another so that they would see Christ. Help us do that faithfully. Help us not just know it, but Father, help us to actually walk in it and know the blessing that you bring from it. Thank you for the example you are to us in that way and how you have equipped us by your Spirit to do these things. Use us now for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.